the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, it's a new year, and we're starting a new book, First Corinthians, and we'll probably be in this book for uh, a while, probably uh, a couple years, if not more. If you're joining us this morning, uh, we practice what's called expository preaching, which basically is a study and preaching through the Bible verse by verse, uh, sometimes word by word. Well, as, be- as we begin, I want you to think about uh, the correspondence you may get from friends or family. When you never, you, whenever you receive any sort of correspondence, the foundation uh, of knowing the context of what follows is knowing who it is that is corresponding with you, knowing who it is that is communicating with you. Though less common these days than electronic communication, whenever I receive a written letter or a card, if the, the envelope doesn't tell me, I skip to the back and see who wrote it before I start the letter. All of us, even in this modern age, have experienced perhaps sending a text message to a friend you haven't contacted in a while or who recently uh, lost their phone and got a new one and they said, sorry, who is this? Because even if it's something like, happy birthday, happy new year, sorry, new phone, who is this? They want to know exactly who it is that is communicating with them. I think it's no coincidence when emails were invented that they were set up so that in your inbox, before you even click on the actual content of the letter, aside from the subject, there is the name of the sender. We want to know who it is that is sending this communication, especially these days when we get so many emails, so many texts, sometimes we need to filter what's important, parents, boss, whatever. And so in many ways, the ancient Greek world had it right, as it was common practice in those days when you wrote a letter to state your name at the very beginning of the letter. And again, by doing that, the writer would set the stage for what is about to be written. Think about it. If you received an email or a text or a letter that starts, quote, we expect to see you in February, It has a completely different meaning if the letter is from your parents who are planning a vacation for President's Weekend versus a letter from the San Mateo County Courthouse. (laughs) Knowing who wrote the letter changes everything. And it's because of all of this that whenever you study a book of the Bible, start a new book of the Bible, either in your personal study or here on a Sunday morning, one of the first questions you have to ask is who wrote it. Now again, in the New Testament at least, just based on how they would write letters, we usually know right off the bat. But when I say you need to know who wrote it, it's, you're not just looking for a name, Peter, Paul, whoever, but an understanding of who that person is, what his ministry is about, what his ministry is to that particular church or individual that is receiving the letter as well as the context from which they are writing is helpful as well. 
although it doesn't often change things. For example, in 2 Timothy, the end of 2 Timothy, when you hear Paul just kind of asking for personal things, saying, bring my cloak, it's cold here, bring my parchments, it's helpful to understand at least that passage to know that he's in prison, uh, most likely awaiting the death penalty, not knowing if he's going to live or die. And so it brings a whole new meaning to the fact that even in his final days, he is eager to study God's Word. He is eager to minister. He is eager to make sure that the church continues on with the proper structure. Well, for us, as we begin our study of 1 Corinthians, naturally we start with the who. And that is not just because of the principles I have laid out, but also because that's where the Holy Spirit begins as well. Follow along as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 1. Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. We see that Paul doesn't just give his name, but also his credentials, as well as mentioning this man Sosthenes, his travel and ministry companion. Let's start with Paul. Who was he? Well, he tells us here that he was called as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, the only true apostles were the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ with Matthias replacing Judas and the apostle Paul, so 13 in total. Now, when you see that word in the Greek, now, of course, in our context, in the church and in the New Testament, the word apostle has a very specific meaning. But the Greek word, generally speaking, just referred to a messenger or someone who was sent on a particular mission. This messenger carries out his mission with the authority of the one who sent him, okay? much like uh, many of you do in your workplace. You go out as a salesperson or a sales rep or you make calls to clients. You do not represent yourself on that particular phone call or in that email or in that meeting. You are representing your company. You are representing that team within the company or whatever it may be. An ambassador right, represents not himself or his own ideas, but he represents the President of the United States if he is an ambassador of the U.S. So he carries the authority of the person who sent him. And naturally, as you think through the apostles of Jesus Christ, this falls into place because we understand what they were about, who their, what their ministry was. This title, apostle, generally speaking, can really refer to anyone commissioned to service on behalf of someone else. An ambassador, an envoy, a messenger. Now, Paul specifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Regardless, even if he didn't have that descriptor at the end, whenever Scripture speaks of an apostle, it is speaking of a specific messenger of Jesus Christ. It doesn't use the word in a general term, but always speaks of one of the 13 apostles. In a wider sense, there were other messengers of the churches that were not apostles. We know them, Silas, Timothy, Barnabas, there's many of them. But again, the role, the, the function, the role, the title of an, of an apostle referred specifically to the 13 apostles of Jesus Christ. This was the highest order in the church, and it explains in part why many today falsely call themselves apostles. 
because they want to claim an authority that is even higher than that of, say, a pastor or a priest or whatever highest authority in the conventional church system may be, whatever church that may be. But they're not true apostles. They may call themselves that. They may say they've been ordained as apostles. They've been called by Jesus as apostles. But they aren't apostles. It simply is not a role that exists anymore. And in fact, the New Testament record is very clear about that. Except for the immediate need to replace Judas because of his betrayal and suicide 2,000 years ago, there is no New Testament record of the role of the apostle continuing. In other words, as the apostles died, they were not replaced. So there have been no apostles for 2,000 years. And so it is a bit curious that there are many people uh, that today, 2,000 years later, are referring to themselves as apostles. It is simply not uh, uh, an office within the church that exists anymore. They are all in heaven, and they've been in heaven for some 2,000 years. Now, Paul makes it clear that his apostleship is genuine as he is an apostle called by Jesus Christ, as was the will of God, he says. This same idea he repeats in many of his epistles. Second Corinthians, we saw this in Galatians, Ephesians, we saw this in Colossians and Second Timothy. All of which state, Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Now, in order to be an apostle, there had to be certain criteria, and these criteria are found when the 11 were looking for a replacement for Judas. So we get kind of a, a fly on the wall because of Acts chapter 1. We get to hear the conversation they had as they were looking for a new 12th apostle to replace Judas. In fact, would you turn with me to Acts chapter 1, and we'll uh, see this together, Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 26. Acts chapter 1. The book of Acts is known as the Acts of the Apostles or the, the record, the, the activities of the apostles, right? You get the establishment of the early church. That's why you have a, a lot of sermons. The conversion of Paul is in there. You have a lot of uh, sermons from the, uh, some of the apostles. And so it is fitting that right off the bat in this record, in Acts chapter 1, these guys got together and said, we've got to find a twelfth. And it is significant that these 12, because Jesus himself said much about the 12 pillars, right? The 12 disciples that were with him. So in Acts chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, I'm going to read the whole passage, but the criteria we find in the first two verses we'll read. Therefore, it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied, accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go his own place. Go to his own place. Verse 26. And they drew lots for them, 
and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. So the criteria of who an apostle had to be is found in verses 21 and 22. Namely, that they had to be part of Jesus' ministry, so they were with Jesus that entire time. So it's part of this group, right? You, you understand that uh, in addition to the 12 disciples that were following along with Jesus, there were crowds that would come and go, but there were all other individuals that were committed to Jesus that were following him, that were part of the ministry, but we just don't know about them or don't know as much about them. Indeed, some of them we know nothing about, but we're early believers and we're with Jesus all the time. We're just, uh, Jesus' focus is on the 12 disciples, the gospel's focus on them, rightly so. So part of Jesus' ministry, and then to have seen the resurrected Christ, okay? This poses a problem for Paul's claim to apostleship because he wasn't with this original group that was with them. As we'll see in a moment, if you know anything about Paul, he was actually a persecutor of Christians before his conversion. So there's no way he was following along and committed to Christ and following him and helping him give out bread and things like that. But there's one very significant truth. Jesus called Paul to himself through supernatural means, and that fulfills these requirements. Again, prior to becoming an apostle, Paul was not, he was known as Saul before that, before his conversion. Saul, then Paul, was not just a persecutor of Christians. He was a strict and powerful Jew. In fact, it was because of his allegiance to Judaism that he persecuted who were considered the enemies of Judaism, the Christians. Now again, Paul's conversion, as well as at the same time his commissioning to be an apostle, came by a supernatural act. So if you are still in Acts, turn ahead a few pages to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 20. And I want to read for you uh, this narrative of how Saul became Paul, who became an apostle. Acts chapter 9. Verses 1 through 20. Now again, remember, Saul and Paul are the same individual. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, so we understand that his desire was not just to harm them, not just to make Christians' lives more difficult, but actually to end their lives. Breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's Christianity, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So he's basically uh, asking the leaders of Judaism, give me your authority, so as I go to the synagogues and as I'm finding Christians and I want to bind them and persecute them and bring them for some sort of punishment, maybe even death, I can show the leaders of individual synagogues, see the high priests have authorized what I am doing here. Verse 3, as he's on his way, okay, keep in mind, he's on his way seeking out Christians to bring to persecution and death. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. 
And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. I think sometimes, this is just kind of a side note, I think sometimes when we read uh, or we think back on these narratives, we kind of just think of, you know, Paul with this letter from the high priest just kind of walking on his own. But he was a powerful man, right? And, and he wasn't a guy who would just kind of go manhandle these Christians on their own. He had a group with him. He was significant. He had muscle. He had protection. He had a cohort with him. And so all of these people, they heard the voice too, and they were speechless. Verse 8, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight and neither ate nor drank. I don't blame him, do you? Verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, and here we get insight into the significance of Paul, even his reputation among Christians. Lord, he says, he prays, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. So word has even gone ahead of him of the authority that Saul has been given. Verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you are coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogues. Just a few days before, remember what he was going to the synagogues for? To show them he has the authority to grab Christians, to bind them. And this wasn't just like, hey, let's hold hands, you know, a loose rope around. No, this would have hurt. This, they would have been dragging them. And now he is proclaiming Jesus in the synagogues the worship centers of the Jews, saying he is the Son of God. I, I don't mean to be crass, but this would be like President Bush or President Obama getting a vision. Obama, Obama. 
Osama bin Laden is to be the new democratic, capitalistic, freedom of religion leader of the United States of America. And the whole, he'd go to his cabinet and they'd be like, are you, are you insane? Are you crazy? What is going on? We know what he has done. We have heard much about the harm this man has done to the United States of America. This is what this was like. And then, within an instant, and then after his missionary journeys, and after being superintended by the Holy Spirit to write out much of the New Testament, for Osama bin Laden to be declared declared one of the most patriotic and influential for freedom Americans that has ever lived. You have to understand who this man was. You have to understand the incredible change of heart that Jesus and only Jesus could do. Not only to make this man a Christian, to make him the most infamous Christian who has ever lived. And with this, he is now a part of Christ's ministry and he has interacted with the resurrected Christ. Later in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 1, we'll see that he tells us that he saw the Lord. We just read where he saw that, saw him. And so he fulfills the requirements of apostleship. And unless Jesus were to reach out in this way, nobody could be an apostle because he has already ascended into heaven, so nobody could interact with the resurrected Lord in this way. So Jesus takes care of that by calling and speaking to Paul on the road to Damascus. It wasn't Paul's choice to follow Christ. Remember this. this uh, it's no uh, accident. Nothing's an accident with the Lord. But we see how strategic and important this was, that it wasn't in between persecution that Paul was just on a personal journey that Jesus called him. It was on this particular journey to heighten the level of persecution of the early church. It wasn't Paul's choice. Not only did he choose to disregard the teachings of the Messiah, he chose to, prison, uh, he chose to punish and imprison those who did follow Christ. He wasn't a good guy. This wasn't a good person that God looked down upon and said, hey, he's all right, let's put him on our team. And if there was anyone who understand that he was who he was only because of God's grace, only because of the will of God, it was Paul. And in the same vein, we know that Paul sees this calling as God's outpouring of grace because of Paul's choice not to follow Christ, but if he had his way, he would be persecuting Christians until his death. Paul's calling was a gospel call to all people as an apostle, but we know specifically he was called to preach to the Gentiles. Did he preach to Jews? Yes, 
but he was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. And we see this mentioned in many of his epistles. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, he says, But when God, who had set me apart even from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So he goes back all the way to his, his time before time calling in Christ, and it leads up that he says, I was called, set apart to be an apostle to the Gentiles. Later in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 7, he actually makes a distinction between Peter and himself. He said, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is Gentiles, non-Jews, just as Peter had been to the circumcised or the Jews. Again, in Romans eleven thirteen, he refers to himself and an, as an apostle of Gentiles. And, you know, turn with me to Romans 15, verses 18 through 19. Romans 15, 18 through 19. This is also Paul in a different book. He says, For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles, there it is again, by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. What a difference. What a difference for a man who not only had the nerve, but also had the significance and power to approach the high priests to say, give me the authority on paper with your signature, with your seal, to torment Christians. By the way, on a personal side note, here in God's Word, it mentions that Paul's ministry reached Illyricum, uh, which is actually, if you look at an ancient map, is ancient Albania. If you don't know why I bring that up, it's okay. Don't worry about it. Let's go back to his mention of his apostleship. For various reasons, often explained by the context of the church he is writing to and in his letter, Paul mentions his apostleship. In Galatians, for example... Paul's apostleship was not recognized by the Judaizers, the the false teachers that were influencing the Christians, so he explains his calling there. Here in Corinthians, Paul asserts his authority and will continue to do so throughout the book. He will provide further evidence for his apostleship in chapters 4 and 5, and we saw in chapter 9 and elsewhere, because of his difficult relationship with them. It's not that they denied his apostleship. But there were some issues going on there. They were at odds with their founder, the founder of the church. They are judging him, uh, though not outright denying. They are scrutinizing his apostleship. In many ways, they are disrespecting him, which for Paul is a concern, not because of his personal ego, but because of the authority that he holds and him wanting them to embrace the scriptures because especially at that time in the early church, while the New Testament was still being penned, you attack the authority of the apostles, you attack the authority of everything. Right? They were the ones who were setting the foundation of the early church. And so they're disrespecting him, they're stabbing him in the back. His relationship 
uh, with the Corinthians is very challenging and very difficult, made all the more difficult because of his overwhelming love for them. And so this isn't a means of self-glory or a sign of pride. He's simply explaining his credentials to explain his authority and to remind these people, hey, stop sinning. Stop doing some of these disgusting things you are doing and get your act together. So he's explaining his credentials, much like I did a few weeks ago when we had a guest speaker. Much like when you go to a conference, a Christian conference or a work conference, they explain who the keynote speaker is. They introduce him. The bio is in the the conference handbook. The idea is that it grabs your attention. It informs you or reminds you of why you should listen to this person. When I introduce a speaker, when someone else introduces me at another church, you may not recognize this, But a good or bad introduction of a speaker by someone that is familiar to that group can make or break the sermon. Because you know me, you trust me, and so if I say this guy has been well-trained, this guy is a godly man, this guy is about to tell you truth, trust him, then you're going to trust him versus him having to spend the first 10 minutes of his sermon trying to gain your trust. And so it's a similar idea here. He reminds them of the authority and calling that he has. So go back to 1 Corinthians if you're not there. As we go through 1 Corinthians, we'll see various teachings that affirm his role of of an apostle as it relates specifically to these believers in Corinth, the Corinthians. And so this isn't, uh, what we're going to look at here is not necessarily qualifications of an apostle, but we see how in this letter he is living out his love for them and his ministry of apostleship to them. In chapter 1 and verse 17, the gospel ministry. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not in cleverness of speech, so that the cross of Christ would not be made void says, I've preached the gospel to you. This was why I was there. He is their spiritual father. Turn to chapter 4 and verse 15. For if you were to have countless tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He also taught them the traditions of the church and about Jesus. And I This next passage is specifically important for us today because it relates to what we will do later uh, this morning, this afternoon. Chapter 11, verses 23 through 29. 1 Corinthians 11, 23 through 29. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. 
But a man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. And this is the passage I make mention of almost every time we serve communion. Obviously, it was, as Paul mentions here, it was Jesus himself who instituted communion, the remembrance through the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. But here, Paul helps explain it, the significance of it, and the severity of it if practiced uh, in the wrong way with the wrong heart attitude. So, back to chapter 1 and verse 1, he begins by reminding them of his calling. Now, keep in mind that an apostle of Jesus Christ is not just, as we saw earlier, a witness to Christ in terms of experience and knowledge and doctrine. But we know that these were also men who lived out Christ's life and resurrection and served as a foundational model for the rest of the church for the last 2,000 years and for however long, much longer the church will exist should the Lord tarry. Paul goes on in verse 1 to mention his companion Sosthenes. This would not mean that he is a co-author but was an associate of Paul's. Mentioning him in particular would indicate that the Corinthians knew who Sosthenes was. This was emphasized by the fact that he refers to him not as my brother, but our brother, Corinthians, our brother, Sosthenes. There isn't much else we know about Sosthenes. There's a good chance he is the same person mentioned as in Acts chapter 18. And even there, all we read is that he was the leader of the synagogue in Corinth and was beaten Perhaps the most significant part of that is the beating uh, that he endured was actually a beating that was meant for Paul. In fact, in Acts 18.17, it isn't even clear who beat him. This actually goes to last week when someone asked in our Q&A, how can we know that the Bible is true and inerrant? And I mentioned that there are some ancient manuscripts um, that have some differences but none of the differences, uh, no, no doctrine hangs on any of those differences. This would be one of them. Some of the ancient manuscripts say it was the Jews who beat Sosthenes. Other ancient manuscripts say it was the Greeks. We don't know, and it really doesn't impact our faith or our doctrine at all. However, if it was the Jews, it would have been uh, for his poor representation of them in the court, if you're familiar with what's happening in that passage. If the Greeks, then it would have been for taking up their valuable court time with an issue that was only important to the Jews and not for all of society. And so that's Sosthenes, but more importantly, uh, that's who Paul is and who his apostleship, what his apostleship entails. So there are two ends of the spectrum here, okay, if I can make this practical for you. On the one end of the spectrum, you are not, nor is anyone else today, an apostle of Jesus Christ. If you want to use the general term as a messenger, sure, we're all messengers of Jesus Christ. Right? We are all ambassadors imploring others to accept Christ in faith. But obviously, we don't use the word apostle because it has different connotations within our church context. On the other end of the spectrum, 
when you look at the apostles, they had a specific calling. They had a specific role. And we will see in, I'm not even guess how long, a few months, that they also had specific gifts that are no longer in practice today. However, they had the same Holy Spirit. They had the same faith. In other words, there wasn't uh, some sort of uh, hidden conversion prayer that they prayed. It was the same prayer of faith to accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. It was the same baptism. It's the same Word of God. It, it, was, it was all that. Right? And so the danger that I want us to avoid is to say, oh, none of us are apostles today, and none of us are even modern missionaries, and so that's for them, not for us. Yes, establishing the church. Yes, healing people miraculously. That's for them, not for us. But preaching the gospel, that's not just for anyone. That's for all of us. Building up the church, that's for all Christians. Encouraging one another, uh, repenting of sin, calling out sin, calling out false teachers, avoiding temptation, that's for all of us. And I feel like especially here in North America, as the clock ticks on, as we've entered another decade, and before you know it, what you said a couple days ago, you're going to be saying again in 10, year, in a, in 10 years, I can't believe it's already another decade because time flies like that. As we grow in age as a country, as a society, as a culture, I feel like there's more and more just mediocrity in Christianity. And I know that there are a lot of social and cultural factors in that. We are more private more than ever, right? We, we show strangers more pictures than ever on the Internet of our family and our meals and you know, our new shoes or whatever it is, how much we can fit in our purse, things like that, right? But we're more private. We're more scared because of hackers and credit card fraud and identity theft and all those types of things. And so when we share the gospel with someone like just once a week, we feel like we've done something wonderful. That is something wonderful. But that's not what the scriptures say. That isn't... The scriptures don't say pray for six months and then muster up the, 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 uh, the courage to share the gospel briefly and nervously to one person. This is your life. This is your, your God. This is your church. This is your Christ. This is your Savior. Right? And I think we can learn so much from the early church. We're, we're careful, right? We're careful not to say that this is all for us, everything they did, but at the same time, I think we throw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak. Or say, well, I'm not an apostle, or even I'm not a pastor, I'm not an elder, I'm not a deacon, I'm not a this and this, right? Whatever, whatever role or function in the church that we don't want to do, we say, well, I'm not that. I'm not a pastor. Well, the deacons do that too. They're preaching the gospel. Then, well, I'm not a deacon. Uh, well, just, you know, the guy who brings the coffee, he's an evangelist. Well, I'm not the coffee guy. And, well, the guy who shines, well, I'm not the shoe shine. You know, we just want to be less to excuse our mediocre Christianity. And I've said this before to you guys and probably haven't said it in a while, but there's, there's this term, we probably don't use it that often, that we call radical Christianity. 
right? The people who are just sold out for Jesus, right? There's, there's tens of thousands of them on certain weekends at certain nationwide Christian conferences, and then about a week later, they're kind of back to where they were before. But who do we call radical Christians? The, the missionaries who, whose biographies we read, right? Even, you know, the great preachers of old, Charles Spurgeon, radical Christianity, right? People, you know, Hudson Taylor, radical Christianity. Elizabeth Elliot, radical Christianity. There's no such thing in my mind as radical Christianity. As wonderful and as amazing and as bold and as sacrificial as those men and women were, some of them giving their lives for the cross, that's not radical Christianity. That's Christianity according to this. That should be average. That should define mediocrity. Elizabeth Elliot lost her husband preaching the gospel. Right? Famous story. The tribal people came and killed them all. And Elizabeth Elliot, the other wives, took their now fatherless children back to the tribe and converted them all. I heard the testimony once at a pastor's conference. Minkaye, one of the tribal men who killed those missionaries, he was there. He speared them to death. The son of one of the men he killed now calls Minkaye Papa. Because his mom brought him back to the village. They converted the whole village and they were these men who had killed their fathers helped raise these children in Christ. Amazing. That is God. But in my mind, that's what we should call just normal average Christianity. In any given conversation, even with your pastor, and especially with family and friends and coworkers, on a casual level, not from nine to five, I would venture to guess that most of us are more inclined to talk about our hobbies, to talk about the last Avengers movie, to talk about our favorite restaurant, to gossip about, gossip about our least favorite manager at work, than we are about the one who died on the cross so that you can live forever with him. And if I'm the only one who sees a problem with that, perhaps that's the bigger problem. We need to follow in the footsteps of the men like Paul that God ordained to establish the church and to set the standard and the model and the example for us. No, you are not an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. But you are a teacher by the will of God. You are a father, a son, a brother, a parent, an engineer, 
a computer scientist, whatever it may be. And God has placed you wherever you are. Most of us here in the United States of America, even though many of our parents came from other countries, God placed us here for a reason. And as much as you may dislike your job and feel like everyone around you, all your coworkers, are liberal and hate God and don't want to hear the gospel, God chose you to be not only in that company, but on that particular floor in that particular cubicle next to that particular individual under that particular supervisor. And God did not call you before the beginning of time as he did with the Apostle Paul so that you could have a good job, pay the bills, get married, raise a family, and then enjoy heaven forever. He called you so that you could raise a family and disciple your children. So you can have a job so that you will know unbelievers that you can share the gospel with. So that you can have, fam- you can have finances that pay the bills so that you can survive, yes, but then the extra doesn't go just to going out to eat and having fun and vocations, but to support the missionaries that you call radical Christians. This is why we're called. This is why we're here. You think God doesn't want us in heaven right now worshiping Him without any sin? There's only one thing we can do on earth that God wants us to do that we can't do in heaven. And that is preach the gospel because the unbelievers won't be there. It's not even excusing it by doing other spiritual disciplines. God doesn't want us to just study the Bible all day. When we're in heaven, we will instantly understand the Scriptures fully without any sinful bias or confusion. He doesn't want, yes, He wants us to worship Him here, but that's not all He wants to be at church all day. Otherwise, we'd be in heaven where we would worship Him sin-free forever at the very foot of His throne. I'm not saying all He wants us to do is share the gospel, but that's part of it. So let's follow this pattern of Paul. And as we look through 1 Corinthians, we're going to hear of some really gross things, some shocking things that these Christians are doing. And you may find that some of you may be doing these things behind closed doors. Some of you may be tempted to do these things. But all of it is based on them not following the pattern that Paul had set for him, for them rather. And that's why he says in the beginning, remember, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. So the rebuke that he's about to lay on them, the scripture, the truth he's about to lay on them, he's saying, I am trying to steamroll and fix all the holes and the cracks and the bumps where you are sinning and disobeying, sometimes in a very gross fashion. And though we may not be practicing the same things that the Corinthians did, we would heed the lesson well that this establishment, this, uh, uh, this greeting of authority sets the pattern. This is all about the will of God. This is all about the authority of the Apostle Paul. This is all about what God wants us to do, no less 
no more, obey. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for a clear understanding of who Paul was, his apostleship. Thank you for this just radical way that you called him, not just from a sinful life, but a, uh, an evil, wicked, satanic way of life, persecuting and killing your people. Lord, may we always be reminded in our own lives when we are tempted to think of our sins being unforgivable or your love waxing and waning because of our temptations and sin. May we always remember the incredible work that you did not only in our own lives but in the life of the Apostle Paul, changing him in such a radical way to become such a vessel and not living an easy life for you, but one in which he was beaten, one in which he was persecuted himself, facing really the the effects of what he once did himself to other Christians. And Father, in that vein, may we now as we take communion be reminded of the words we read earlier and take this seriously to understand what we have been called to do, who we have been called to be as we take communion. In Jesus' name, amen.